Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Even though I studied philosophy in undergrad and have been reading and thinking and talking about theology since I was 18, so for 17 years, it wasn't until recently, like within the last two years, that I really got a decent handle on both the difference between postmodernism and modernism, against which postmodernism was a reaction, and how postmodernism has an effect on the way that I might view my Christian faith. It's kind of embarrassing to admit that, honestly, because one thing that a bachelor's in philosophy is supposed to get you is some good old-fashioned hubris. Uh, Lord knows it's not going to get you any kind of job. And I've known for a while that I'm a better amateur theologian than I am an amateur philosopher, but still, this one kind of stings. And by the way, um, it's not going to be a bunch of terminology that philosophers only understand in this episode. 
Uh, we're going to really explain the difference between modernism and postmodernism in, in regular person language. But anyway, as I came to understand the difference between modernism and postmodernism and started to be able to apply that to the Bible, to the religious experience of myself and others, to how people of other genders, ethnicities, abilities, etc., experience God, the text, and experience Christian tradition and practice, it's been honestly exciting. I would say that postmodernism has made Christianity much, much richer, for me anyway. Today's topic is primarily the Bible and how a postmodernist and a modernist Christian might read it and think about it differently. Now, in the show notes, I have a link to this Terence Fretheim article that Tom and I are basing our discussion on. You definitely don't need to read that article in order to kind of follow along with what we're saying, but it definitely couldn't hurt. So feel free to pause this episode and go read that article. It's like 13 pages. It's not super long, but it is just packed with so much goodness. Um, Again, you don't need to read it. The goodness that it's packed with is exactly what we will be unpacking uh, today in my conversation with Tom Ord. Before we get to that chat, though, I want to tease here that at the end of this episode, I will be answering a patron question, as I've been doing recently. This week, the question is, did you receive flack from your evangelical friends and church family when you became decidedly gay affirming? What were the range of responses like? That's the question, and I'm going to get a little bit vulnerable answering that one. So stay tuned after the main interview. But for now, postmodern Christianity and the Bible. Dr. Thomas J. Ord, thank you so much for being here today. I want to explain a little bit what's going on here because you are mostly speaking on someone else's behalf today, but also you'll speak on your own as we go. Basically, you and uh, my buddy, Dr. Trip Fuller, have been doing this open and relational theology reading group online. I've been a member of that group and have really enjoyed it. You guys basically cool. selected six uh, thinkers and then one to three articles from each thinker. And then you guys do like an hour and a half podcast sort of talking through it. And there's a discussion group on, on the Facebook group for everybody. And it's been awesome. And, uh, and, and one of the thinkers was this guy, Terrence Fretheim. And he had an article that actually you edited. We, we had your edited version of his, his work. And it was like, it was called Rethinking the Bible, but it's basically postmodernism and the Bible, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I was reading through this and I thought, this is so concise and mm. so, like, this is a, such a, this is an episode waiting to happen, basically. Good. <laughs> the, the problem is Terrence Fredheim is now in his late 80s and he's retired. Uh, I did send him an email, but he probably never saw it. Um, and I thought, you know, it might actually be better to have Tom come on and just talk through this because you did edit this particular piece. You're very familiar with his work. You guys have conversed and spoken together at conferences. And, and um, I just think you're like a very good teacher. Uh, oh, well, thank you. And you're a concise communicator. And so I appreciate you being willing to sort of play second fiddle to Fredheim today. Uh, although, of course, we'll we'll get your thoughts on a lot of this as we go. So that's kind of what we're doing. But for people who haven't listened to our previous conversation about healing prayer, maybe 10 or so episodes ago, can you introduce yourself a little bit to the listeners? 
Sure. Uh, I'm a theologian and philosopher. I say I'm a theologian, philosopher, and scholar of multidisciplinary studies because uh, I do a lot of work in science and religion and explore the relationship between uh, theology and the humanities. Um, so I've, I'm one of those eclectic people whose interests are all over the board. I've been a professor for 20 plus years, written a bunch of books. I kind of use the phrase open relational theology as a framework to talk about the kinds of beliefs I have about God and the world, how we ought to live. Uh, probably above all, though, I think of myself as someone who is trying my best to live a life of love and figure out what that means intellectually, emotionally, physically, psychologically, you know, in all realms of life. I want to be a person who lives a life of love consistently. And um, that ends up pushing me into exploring the kind of questions that we want to talk about today. Yeah. One thing I've begun saying a lot on this show that I, I more and more am convinced by is that Different people require a different level of granularity to their model and understanding of God. Uh, mm. You and I are the type who require quite a bit of granularity, would yeah. you say? Yeah, right. Yeah, I do think that. And so your story is really one of like, you recognize that about yourself. You need a picture of God that is consistent with your worship of God, that is consistent with the Christian God, roughly speaking, as portrayed in the Bible and the Christian tradition. And that's led you to... Pretty, I mean, not extreme, but very detailed and kind of big claims uh, in your own theology. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's true. I, I was doing an interview recently uh, with another program, and, and as the discussion went on, I got the clear sense that in comparison with the other people in the conversation, which there were multiple, I'm a bigger risk taker than most people. Hmm. Uh, I'm I'm willing to jettison some ideas if they don't make sense. I'm not a person who uh, settles easily for I told you so. And so I, I think I just, by personality, am willing to take bigger risks to ask questions that might make some people feel uncomfortable. So what do we need to know about Dr. Fretheim before we begin? Can you give us a, a real basic background of his work? Yeah, he's a uh, Old Testament scholar, taught at uh, Luther Seminary for 30-plus years. I don't remember the exact number. Yeah, a long time. You know, temperamentally, he's a pretty even-keel kind of person. You know, he's not uh, he's not Walter Brueggemann up there throwing, throwing down things. Right. He's very even-keeled in the way he thinks about things. But I think perhaps almost more than any other, I can't think of even an equal, let alone uh, someone who is similar. He has pushed Old Testament studies uh, today in the direction of thinking carefully about the theological issues at stake. You know, I, I suspect some folks who listen to this program, when they think of Bible scholars, they probably have in mind, you know, people who sit around and study carefully the ancient languages and try to figure out, quote, what God is saying. But that's very unlike what most uh, biblical scholars are doing. Most biblical scholars are trying to look at the text carefully and ask critical questions about uh, what it's saying, what kinds of ideas that people might have had. And in fact, I know some atheists who are biblical scholars, so uh, you don't have to even believe in God to be an excellent biblical scholar. But what Terry does that I think is unusual is he 
not only goes for the details of the, you know, the text and the languages, but he also wants to make claims about the God revealed there. And I think that makes him an especially uh, exciting conversation partner. What do we need to know about postmodernism? Obviously, we could do a whole episode on postmodernism, but it's it's a term that gets thrown around a lot, especially in conservative circles. It's kind of a bogeyman term. It's, yeah. a, it's a scare word. But like, just what does postmodernism actually mean? And are there any sort of common myths we could dispel before we start here? When I teach my graduate courses on postmodernism, I usually identify four strands. But maybe today, what I would focus on is the idea that postmodernism places into question the possibility that we can know truth with absolute certainty, Hmm. that our claims about the world, about the Bible, about God, about ourselves, are the kind of rock-sure foundations that we can know 100% are accurate, and then from them build some sort of understanding of reality. Postmodernism really places that into question. Uh, And maybe an example of that, an early example of that kind of modern or modernity type thinking is Rene Descartes, right? In his in his big work, he says, I start with, I think, therefore I am. This is a completely certain fact. If I didn't exist, I couldn't think. There's no me to think. And from there, he builds out a, a big system that he claims is built on 100% certain foundation. And this follows from this and this follows from this. And the postmodern project is like, uh, that didn't work, Rene, right? Exactly. Yeah. Maybe we can know with certainty that I think, therefore, I am. But a lot of the really important things of our lives, we can't know with certainty. I like to think my wife loves me and has loved me consistently for 30 plus years. But I can't know that with certainty in the usual philosophical way of thinking, at least. And then there's other questions about whether or not there's a God. What's, you know, is it always wrong to have an abortion? All kinds of these questions that we wrestle with. Postmodernism pulls out the rug from any kind of notion that we can know with absolute certainty what the truth is on these important issues. And so it's not hard to see how this is going to relate to the Bible and the authority of the Bible. What do you think Fretheim's getting at when he says what's at stake here with postmodernism is nothing less than the authority of the Bible? Well, he's uh, addressing a worry that a lot of folks have when they read what postmodernists say, and they have a hard time arguing against the, the, the claims. And then they say, well, if postmodernism is correct, that we can't be certain about Scripture's uh, authority in our lives, uh, authority in and of itself, etc., then do we have any basis to make claims about God and reality? Is it just what we say in philosophy? Is it just extreme relativism? Truth is whatever I decide it is or my particular group decides it is. And Terry wants to address that early on in this particular chapter. Yeah, and we're going to get to some of those particular common reactions from the right, we might say. But let's start with his, uh, he talks about that biblical authority is in crisis in the postmodern age. And he doesn't question whether or not we are in fact in the postmodern age. And I don't think very many people do. Whether or not postmodernism is an accurate way of looking at the world, we certainly are in a postmodern age where grand meta narratives are under question by, by most modern people living today. And he lays out three overlapping spheres of this crisis culture, churches, 
and the Academy. Can you talk through each of those just a little bit? Sure. Uh, The first one on culture, he notes that a lot of folks, especially in the West, but I think around the world, uh, when they hear someone say, I know what the truth is, they say to themselves, oh, come on now, we've heard this before. We've heard people abuse this idea that, you know, we understand reality and we now need to teach you what it is. And so many folks are suspicious of authority today. There's also a lot of folks on the landscape saying, you know, this is the truth. Uh, in, in the past, people may have grown up in a town and only heard, let's say, in the West, the Christian message. And they haven't been exposed to the variety of messages in uh, the various world's traditions. But Not now, even yeah. just that. They might have only gotten the Southern German Lutheran message, right? I mean, exactly. not even— just so it goes out like fractals, right? Our particularity, we we recognize that we've had this particular experience. And those kind of grand narratives that are spoken from on high, top down, there are religious versions of that that led to things like the Crusades and the Inquisition. There are yes. secular versions of that like Stalinism and Nazism. And so people, especially after two world wars, are kind of like, uh, these these are suspicious <laughs> narratives. If someone tells you, I know the meaning of life, and especially if they have some power or some program they'd like you to be a part of, you ought to be wary of that. Exactly, exactly. And I think under this culture thing, one of the things Terry doesn't mention that I think is super important. So here I'm pushing in an idea that's not in the text. You know, I, I think about my daughters who are all college age or older. If they want to know what Taoists believe or Confucianists believe, I mean, they just... It's right there in their hand. They go on the phone and they get the answer. And not only that, many of them will even rub shoulders with Taoists and Confucianists, especially if you're in an urban area. And so it's not just the ideas. You see the actual people face to face. In uh, 150 years ago, that was far less common. Obviously, there was no internet. But even rubbing shoulders with folks of other religious traditions was quite uncommon. That brings people to question folks who stand up and say, my way is the right way and every other way is wrong. And so that's part of the postmodern culture we live in. Yeah, I kind of think of it like the interconnectedness of the world through media. That that starts with World Wars I and II. And then the evil of those wars and sort of the mass suffering and kind of the failure of what is called the Enlightenment Project, which had begun, you know, maybe 100, 150 years before World War II, of like, we can do this, we, we can, this great uh, human uh, achievement is around the bend. And then, yes. you, and then <laughs> not only does do the World Wars happen, but everybody hears about them and everybody sees the footage of the death camps. And then fast forward 50, 60 years, and with the true age of information that we're in now, there, there's just no way to get a kid from Missouri who has any inkling whatsoever that he's curious about Buddhism from learning about Buddhism. Exactly. It's just right there. Yeah, totally agree. And so Christians ought to, in Fredheim's view and in yours and mine, rethink some of the claims that we're making based on that fact. So the next one is, uh, the next sphere of the crisis of authority for the Bible is in churches. Yeah, so Terry, I think, rightly says that people, especially here in the West, 
just don't know the Bible as well as they used to. You know, mm-hmm. they, they don't go to church as often. It's not talked about in school. It's still, you'll, you'll hear lots of biblical phrases in the public sphere, but it's just not as common. And there's a number of reasons for this, I think. Uh, one of them, I think, is kind of a strange one, and that is, uh, you know, 50, 100 years ago, a lot of people had one version of the Bible. And so if they used the King James and had a particular turn of phrase, everyone will kind of know where that came from. But today we have so many different versions that we don't have the capacity to have a particular phrase ring true in the ears of so many people. And then to, to make things worse, those particular phrases, or at least some contentious ideas in the Bible have been, as as Terry puts it in here, used more like an Uzi than a source of life. In other words, people have used the Bible to argue their points and actually hurt other people rather than it becoming a life-giving source. Yeah, an example that comes to mind is is people just throwing out, do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman, for that is an abomination. What, yeah. Whatever you think about that issue, and I have many friends who have compassionate takes who are not open and affirming. Uh, they at least recognize that that's in Leviticus and it's in a set of rules that Christians don't follow. And so you need a, a more robust argument. And to just throw that at someone is, is they call it a clobber passage for a reason, right? Exactly. You know, and that's one of the more contentious ones in the conversation today. 30, 40 years ago, it was women be silent in church. Right. Uh, so there's lots of these passages that have been used to, you might say, as power moves to uh, uh, force a particular way of looking at reality as preferable or perhaps the absolute right way. And then the third of these overlapping spheres, and we can already see how they're overlapping, right? Some of the stuff with churches and the, the ubiquity of the King James language, well, that's a cultural thing too, hence the overlap. The third one is the academy. What does he mean by that? Well, here he especially focuses on a particular way of reading the scriptures that places an emphasis upon the role of the reader herself. That is, the acknowledgement that when we come to the Bible, we have particular perspectives, experiences, uh, ways of living in the world that affect the way we interpret the text. And so that's why, you know, it's it's not a surprise when uh, a black woman from the South reads the text. It sounds the kind of interpretation she might have is going to differ from a white guy in Seattle or a Chinese woman. These kinds of uh, realities that our interpretation of Scripture uh, is shaped by our life experiences has now come to play a greater role in Uh, the way the people in the academy think about interpreting the Bible. Yeah, an example of that uh, that's come up recently for me is this idea of how to read the Canaanite conquest narratives. Mm. I I grew up, like, that was the linchpin for me. That was really the the thread that I had to unravel in my own deconstruction Mm. process of thinking about sort of the moral disgustingness of a an Israelite soldier killing a Canaanite that God commanded. But mm-hmm. I heard uh, Propaganda, the hip-hop artist and thinker, on another podcast saying in his African-American community, he grew up hearing those passages as like, this is God making things right for an enslaved and oppressed people group. Mm. And he and I could have a long conversation about how we might reconcile these two readings that's not the point. The point is just 
his context gave him a totally different initial angle. My context mm. was one of privilege. And I thought, well, I don't need the land. I don't need the land of Canaan. I've got everything I need. Why would God command us to do something so gross? And his yeah. was different. And so the postmodern thing, that this kind of reader response criticism, as he calls it, is just, a, first of all, acknowledging that our context will affect the way that we come to a text, right? Exactly. And, and as a lot of folks who I'll call them fundamentalists are really bothered by this uh, because they want to say there is a plain and straightforward reading of the text. You don't interpret it. You yeah. just read it. You get the truth. I remember about uh, three years ago, I was at the World Parliament of Religions and I had set up this conversation between uh, a couple of us who, in, who are part of the Church of the Nazarene and uh, an LDS scholars, uh, some Mormons. And we had a great conversation talking about our similarities and differences. And after it was over, a woman came up and started asking me questions. And, and at first, I thought she was kind of, you know, really wanting to know answers. And then I started realizing this was a, a gotcha situation. Right. She was trying to trap me. And at one point I said, uh, well, look, that's just not the way most people that I know, especially in scholarly circles, interpret the text. And she says, you don't interpret the text, you just read it. And I thought, now that in a nutshell is the way a lot of people think one approaches the Bible. There's no interpreting going on. It's kind of like a download into your head. You got the text, you got the info, and you're just supposed to suck it in with no filters whatsoever. So this brings up a, a kind of a nuanced point. So in terms of the history of Western thought, what that woman expressed and what a fundamentalist would express is what we would call a modern uh, reading of the text or, or, or approach to the text, modernity is it's, it's that, that season. Some people think that what that woman offered is what people always assumed the text to be, but that's not true. There was pre-modern readings before there were modern and then Postmodern. So pre-modern would include Thomas Aquinas, Augustine, all the all the church fathers and mothers, all the or every ecumenical council, you know, before the split of East and West. And then with Descartes and basically this rationalism and enlightenment thinking, we get modernity. The fundamentalists latch on to that. And then post-modernity is a response to modernity where it brings back some of pre-modernity but it has its own kind of take on it with this wider, I guess, exposure to the to the wider world. Is that about right? Yeah. That's a beautiful way to express well, that. Thank yeah. you, Tom. <laughs> and just one little illustration of how folks prior to, let's say, the 19th century fundamentalism might interpret uh, difficult passages in the Bible. Uh, it was very common for someone, let, let's say, like Augustine, who is reading the Bible and comes up against some story or some idea that doesn't fit with what he thinks uh, God is telling, saying in other scripture, it's very common for them to use what we call allegory. That is, take that story and kind of spin it out to say, well, it really means this if you look at it this kind of way, um, which is not at all a literal reading of the text. Right. So then, just briefly, this question of the meaning of scripture— the postmodern approach versus the modern slash fundamentalist approach. How, how would you put that in a nutshell? Well, I think the modernist thinks that the meaning is all in the text itself and that somehow it can be transferred 100% with 100% accuracy into our heads. 
Whereas the postmodernist is very skeptical of that and believes that the meaning is going to be at least partly made by the person reading the, the text and the kind of community that person is in. So it's not so it's not a one-to-one correspondence between the Bible and the ideas that are in my head as I read it. It's worth noting, I think, here that this is different than the conversation about the inerrancy of Scripture, right? That's a conversation about the text itself. Did it come to us in some way without errors such that God would ensure that there are no errors? Or is the text infallible? Would God ensure only that we have enough for salvation and a life of faith? That is really a conversation about the text. This is a conversation about what human brains and human communities do once we have the text, regardless of whether it's inerrant or infallible or merely inspired, right? That's a great way to put it. Although I would say the vast majority of people who have a modernist, uh, say, fundamentalist view of Scripture and think that you, what the words you read are, don't need any interpretation whatsoever, the vast majority of those people are also really concerned about inerrancy. Because they don't, it wouldn't make a lot of sense if they thought the Bible had lots of errors, but I could understand it perfectly. Uh, They want to make sure God delivered that Bible error-free and that I can understand it perfectly without having to interpret it. Right. That that would be an interesting topic itself, which is sort of what are the, maybe even the psychological and sociological relationships between inerrancy and a modern approach to interpretation of the text. And of course, that does make sense. You're not going to find, there there would be no reason to be a modern in this sense, uh, or fundamentalist if you didn't have an inerrant text. Right. Um, but it's, I think it's just worth noting that the, there are two arguments there that have to be made, and one does not entail the other. They are separate yes. arguments that you have to yeah. make sense of. So this leads to his next point, which is that the Bible itself, if we take it seriously, has multiple and sometimes conflicting voices within it, things about history, things about God. And so how does this sort of work into a postmodern reading? Well, uh, this was actually a thing for me personally, if I could share a little of my personal sure. experience. Um, it, this played an important role in my rethinking the Bible back when I was in college in the uh, mid-1980s. Uh, tells you how old I am. I remember taking a, a course on uh, biblical hermeneutics and starting to notice that the same stories would have different details in different places in Scripture. Uh, For instance, uh, you know, one of the stories has Jesus meeting one, quote, demon-possessed man, and the other story has the same location, and there's two of them there. So, you know, what's going on there? Or uh, one text says that God asks uh, the king to take a a census of all the people in the land, and another text says it's Satan that asked the king to take the census. And so those are sort of strange Uh, apparent contradictions, at least differences within the text. And a person who is a a fundamentalist wants to try to figure out some way to iron those out so that they don't sound like they're saying something different. Whereas what Fredheim is saying is, look, um, if we're going to be true to what the Bible is actually saying, we have to take these differences seriously and uh, not pretend like somehow we can get back to this true explanation of what happened there, but ask the questions of what does the Bible actually say? And it turns out the Bible does isn't always consistent on these kinds of issues. Where Fretheim takes that is he says, this is where the postmodern will say, 
the Holy Spirit comes in. There's a third party involved. So if yeah. we have a text that is saying different things at different times, how do we adjudicate that? Well, good thing we are Trinitarians. This is perhaps exactly where the Holy Spirit comes in, in our moment-to-moment life of faith. Yeah, and I think that's a nice move. You know, it's not like, you know, people before post-modernity didn't believe in the Holy Spirit, of course. helping them understand Scripture. But uh, this particular situation does place a greater emphasis upon how the Holy Spirit might be active right now in helping us understand some truth out of the text itself. Another anecdote, if you, if I may. Sure. I go to a church in which we read the scriptures every Sunday morning, and then at the end, uh, someone stands up and says something like, the word of God for the people of God, and, and we all say, thanks be to God. I don't like that phrase. I don't like it because I don't think the Bible is the word of God. Mm. And so uh, I noticed in my particular church that I'm going to, they've changed it slightly, and they'll say, the written word of God. I don't like that either. (laughs) When I'm up reading the scripture on the Sunday morning and we get to the end, I have a little phrase that I've coined that fits in this conversation about the Holy Spirit. I say this, did you hear a word from the Lord? That places the emphasis upon the present listener, present reader of scripture, and the possibility that the Holy Spirit might be speaking to them in the moment. And then if the congregation can say, thanks be to God, it's a sort of way of acknowledging that in reading the Bible, the Spirit can be active into teaching us truth. I think that's a a sort of a, I didn't learn this from anybody, it's just kind of my way of trying to make sense of what's going on, but I think Fretheim and those in the reader response tradition would appreciate that approach. I think that gets to one of the great travesties, or, or at least I could say One of the great devotional travesties of the triumph of a kind of fundamentalist or fundamentalist adjacent Christianity in in America, which is that so many of us are raised to read the Bible devotionally. That's huge. I mean, that is the main measure of your walk. If someone asks me, and I'm 15 years old in youth group, hey, Dan, how's your walk? What they really mean is, are you having your quiet times? Exactly, yep. (laughs) And so that means personal devotional reading of Scripture. But the Mm -hmm. assumption is that Scripture is read in this modern fundamentalist or or fundamentalist-ish kind of a way, plain sense, what's the saying to me? And so many people assume or are taught that if you go to a postmodern or to some slippery kind of reading of the text, you won't have this devotional relationship with God through the Bible anymore, but it might be exactly the opposite. Right. If you think that there are multiple meanings you might get from a passage, then the Holy Spirit can nudge you toward one of those readings, the reading that is right for you in that moment. That is more devotional than excavating whatever passage it is for the one meaning over all people's lives, over their entire span of life and all their cultures. Yeah, nicely put. I like that. This is where I start preaching, I guess. But (laughs) but that's really... And and so this leads to our first of these kind of big worries, which will be peppered in, these kind of common counter arguments. If we take a postmodern view of the Bible, does that mean that any old interpretation can be equally valid? 
No, definitely not. And Fredheim addresses that directly here. He wants to avoid two extremes. One is this absolute relativism, that any old interpretation is as good as the others. While on the other hand, avoiding the idea that somehow we can get the 100% right interpretation of Scripture. And he does this by saying, look, words can only have a certain range of meaning. So it can't be, you know, absolutely anything goes. We're also people who live in communities and particular settings, and that's going to place some constraints on us. So built into the whole process itself is some kind of, we might say, railings here on what can be appropriate. Now, within those railings, there's a wide variety of appropriate possibilities. Uh, But it's not just one right uh, way of reading the Bible or a gazillion equally right ones. Yeah, and we're going to get to uh, later some of the kind of ways that he thinks we can basically have some bumpers and buffers as we go about that interpretive process. One thing that he mentions that I think is so interesting and and important is he says that the postmodern approach to texts and culture acknowledges the webs of community that mm-hmm. every person is in, that every tradition has formed around. So what do you want to say about, about that, about the acknowledgement of this sort of interconnected web that we are all in? Well, that particular idea is at the heart of the way I see reality. I mean, okay. um, <laughs> it's pretty important for me. I think uh, we understand who we are as people, as uh, communities, as groups, as societies. In fact, all of existence, I think, is, uh, should be understood as interconnected, interrelated. And so him saying that that's important in the interpretive process fits with the way I view reality itself. And I, I view it that way, not because I've sort of adopted some weird idea from out there and tried to impose it in the world that I live in. I I view it that way because that seems to describe well this world that I live in and the kind of person I am. Things seem to be interrelated and interconnected. Fredheim says that, quote, the indeterminacy of meaning in the biblical texts actually has the potential of enhancing biblical authority, end quote. We just talked about how that indeterminacy might enhance a devotional reading. It might actually facilitate uh, more of direct relationship with the Holy Spirit. But how could it also, it, it does seem counterintuitive that it would increase biblical authority, right? If we if we just had an unerring, dictated scripture that everybody had to submit themselves to, doesn't that seem like the greatest possible authority we could imagine? So how do you think about this? Yeah, this is a tough one for me. I, when I read that, I was not quite sure what Terry's trying to argue for okay. here. So I'm not sure I can represent his ideas well. Well, let's just get your ideas then. <laughs> well, let me I, give you a possible way, knowing your okay. thought. Okay, go what for it. What makes something authoritative? Is authority only coercive and powerful? Or no. is something arguably more authoritative if we submit to its authority because we know it has our best interests at heart. Yeah, if that's the way we're looking at it, I'm on board and saying that something is authoritative, not because it's overriding my freedom and my agency, but but because I find it alluring, wooing, persuasive, or winsome. Yeah. Um, and actually, that gets to 
something I was I wanted to say earlier in this interview, and it, it comes on the very first page of this particular chapter. I think I'll bring it in now because it fits sure. in well. When he's talking about authority in this chapter, he, he sets up the reader. If the reader's not ready for it, he kind of tricks the reader at the very beginning to give you, maybe tricks the wrong word, but he gives you a clue of where he's going to go. He says this, the Bible's authority will only be acknowledged if, through its use, people see that it speaks to their needs of life, well-being, and flourishing of communities. This is, so okay, he, so now we're going to get to it, yeah. He's set, saying up front, authority isn't the somehow inerrant nature of the scriptures. Authority isn't our proof that it comes straight from heaven in 7-Eleven or whatever. Uh, authority isn't the way that it, the logic works so perfectly and the historical records are accurate and it's scientifically complete and there are no contradictions. That's not how you find authority in Scripture. What you, The authority of the Scripture is how it makes a difference positively in our lives, promotes well-being, yep. brings us to salvation, all that kind of thing. And so, I'm totally 100% on board on that kind of notion. And I remember early in my life when it clicked in my mind that that would be a much more healthy way to think about the Bible than trying to make sure it didn't have any errors in it whatsoever. Yeah, we might say authority is not imposed, authority is earned. Ah, nice. Yes. And yeah. that, that goes well with Mark when it says that uh, the Son of Man came not to ser- came not to uh be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's this bottom-up servant leadership that Christ shows in his ministry and life and, and willingness to die. And if that shows us God and that and if God is the only real source of authority in, in, in the world, in the universe, then, then that fits together quite nicely. And furthermore, if we want a text that will speak universally— to Christians and not yet Christians over time, over cultural space, over geographical space. Uh, isn't it weird to think that like the Korean, like Koreans living in El Salvador need to read the Genesis account exactly the same way that Protestants <laughs> in the Midwest do? Like, right. shouldn't, wouldn't we want it to be a flexible, not flexible in ultimate pointing to the loving God of the world, but like, Flexible in terms of how people can relate it to their life so that they can read it devotionally, so that they can organize communities of faith around the text. I think I see what he's getting at there. Yeah, and I think it's not only you sort of set it up like, don't we want it to be like that? I think it already is like that. Right, I, right. That's the way people actually approach it. Even if they say in their language they're not doing it that way, in reality, that's how we're doing it. But I would even bring in Scripture itself, the Bible itself, to support Terry's view here. Okay. I mean, probably the most quoted passage when it comes to Scripture is the one in Timothy, where it's Paul says, you know, all Scripture is inspired or God-breathed. And then it says, and is useful for, and it starts laying off all these ways it's useful. In other words, what makes the Bible authoritative, I think, for Paul is that it, it's useful in making our lives better, bringing us salvation, making the world a better place. All those kinds of phrases we use to talk about promoting well-being in our lives and in the world. And that, I think, is Terry's point, but he stole it from the Apostle Paul. 
Before I get into advertising uh, this week's new patron episode, I want to reiterate something that I say sometimes, but not often enough. I don't want money to be a problem for people becoming patrons. I have a couple people who have offered to sponsor people's uh, membership in the Patreon who can't afford it right now. It's just not in the financial cards for them. So please email me if that is you and we'll figure something out. I don't want people to not have access to the community and not have access to the resources. So you have permission podcast at Gmail if you want to chat with me about that. Now about the new patron episode that is just coming out. I was on a podcast called Fade to Gray recently, and this is a podcast with 10 hosts scattered all around the country and even around the world. And I was so interested. Well, first of all, it was a great conversation. They asked really good questions. It was a cool community. And I just was interested, like, how do they do this? And so I wanted to chat with them about that. And I did. And we had a conversation that was pretty wide ranging, but it was a lot about how they came together and and even some of the nuts and bolts of podcasting, which I, of course, find interesting as a podcaster myself. Anyway, here are a couple clips from that conversation to kind of give you an idea what that was like. Elizabeth, you're very clearly recording from within a closet and your husband has like the nice room with the soundproofing on the back. So do we need to have a little intervention here about gender roles and equity and we started talking on that app marco polo and uh and we realized that these online friendships that we'd have for a year or two through the the locker room on facebook um were really starting to blossom into something a lot deeper um when we could actually see each other's faces um and so we were able to suddenly connect with people that we never thought we'd be connecting with like, I love Andy to death, but you know, a year and a half ago, I was like, I'm not going to talk to that guy. (laughs) Um, And that we like that guy. Like I get along really well with this guy and I I think I love him like a brother and I I can do that even though we don't agree on everything. So the men have the locker room group. The women have the PMS group. And so that already seems problematic. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Um, (laughs) That sounds like some cranky old white man named the two groups for you. It does, but uh, let me see. We're we're, we're called PMS for Precious Motherfucking Sisters. (laughs) Bad Christian uh, has allowed me to air and process through a lot of my doubts and insecurities and feel safe in doing that. But then I'm like, what's next? I've been wondering what's next for the last couple of years because I still believe in God. So it's been great to deconstruct and kind of reorganize everything, but I want to be able to start re-engineering that. And I don't want to go into a church setting. I just, I don't want to do it. So I've reached out to some people that I know in both the Bad Christian community and the Fade to Gray community, and we're kind of going to do something on Sundays where we get together, um, we're going to have someone lead some worship, and then just like do a group talk about relative issues and bring in the Bible. So the Bible is still going to be incorporated, um, but it's not going to be like someone's up there and they know everything. It's more of a, we're going to process through this together. So it's like an online house church, basically. Kind of, or small group in a way. Okay, that's fascinating. And and uh, no two people will probably be in the same space, or might there be two or three gathered <laughs> not trying to no pun intended with scripture there I really that was organic 
So if that sounds interesting to you or any of these previous patron episodes that I've kind of teased uh, with these little trailers sound interesting to you, or if you just want to be a part of the Facebook group, which is really going off right now, if you want to help me write questions for my interviewees, if you want to ask the questions that I answer at the end of episodes, or if you just want to support the work that I'm doing financially because you find it valuable, patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermission.com or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. It's five bucks a month. You can give more if you want. You don't have to. And you get all that stuff and you get that warm feeling. Anyway, back to the episode. So, Tom, this is a question that I'm actually excited to ask you because, of course, what Fredheim has to say here will be interesting. But this also really relates, as I understand it, to a lot of your work. He says in this article that our view of God will shape how we view the Bible. What does he mean by that? And where have where do we see examples of that in, in your own thought and work? Yeah, I could go on and on about this one. So I'll try to take, yeah. make it brief. If you think God, we should begin by understanding God by starting with God's power. And you think God's power is uh, what I like to call controlling or what some of my uh, more Calvinist friends like the word sovereign. And that's the idea that God is either meticulously controlling everything or could do that, at least for the the important stuff, then uh, you're likely to think that the Bible was somehow meticulously put together without any errors whatsoever by God, given to us to reveal some sort of message. And therefore, you're going to probably approach it thinking, man, I've got to be very careful. And if there's any seemingly contradictions, I've got to figure out a way to work this together because a God who is powerfully manipulating or meticulously working it all out wouldn't have made any errors. And it's up to me now to to try to get my head around this to get the right message that God must have intended. And the causality works both ways, right? Because the, yes. the Calvinist is also finding certain passages that confirm that view of the text or that view of God, which then confirms that view of the text, right? So it, 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 there can be a self-reinforcing kind of a cycle in, in any of these different views. Definitely. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I don't have that particular view of God's power. I think God is powerful, and I can affirm the biblical messages to God's power, but I don't think God is a controlling God. And so the kinds of claims about God acting in Scripture, I can affirm but say that God isn't overriding, overruling, you know, taking away freedom and agency in the world. And because of that, then I can also look at Scripture and say, you know, in the uh, writing of Scripture— God wasn't meticulously making sure every single detail is correct, that there's some kind of human agency and human uh, activity and thought patterns that are making a real contribution here. And then me as a reader, I have kind of agency and interpretive powers, and I'm playing a role as I try to make sense of things. So we've got all these forces and factors that then when I see apparent contradictions, I'm not really surprised because, you know, I know I don't understand everything well, and the people who write it probably didn't understand everything well, and God isn't meticulously making sure everything works out perfectly. Uh, so it's a very different approach to Scripture because, for me at least, I start with a God of love who wouldn't be in the business of controlling everything. Uh, so I think Terry's right. How you begin 
with your view of God is going to affect how you read the Bible, what you expect from the Bible, and how you approach these apparent uh, discrepancies within it. I wonder if this conversation might serve the role for some people of either sort of disrupting that causal ecosystem or giving them language for what has already happened in the disruption mm. of their old sort of rela- ecosystem. You know, I, I, I use that word because you, know, you think about clouds pour down rain and then that water gets evaporated, which makes clouds. So it's like the, the view of God and the text itself and reading and, and thinking through. There's this uh, reciprocity there. And so maybe this yeah. can help people f- find a, a different way. Another thing that strikes me is that there are two different evidences when it comes to this alternate view of God that, that you presented, ver- the non-sovereign controlling God. One is that there are a lot of passages, and, and Fretheim points a lot of these out. We're not dwelling on it a bunch uh, too much today, but he, he lists a lot of Old Testament passages where God is presented as totally not controlling things, as really responding to Abraham, responding to Moses. And then the other thing is this thing we've been kind of talking around the, these multiple voices anyway. There's like a meta fact of the text, which is that it it internally disagrees. And so that might give us an indication of the kind of God who would give this kind of Bible with internal disagreement. So you see what I'm saying? There's sort of two, two yeah, layers nice. of that. Yeah, I like that. That's nicely put. I want to quote Fretheim here. Quote, in the eyes of some, developments regarding science or history threaten or diminish the authority of the Bible. They ask, how can the Bible be authoritative on one level, that is the spiritual level, but not on another level, science or history, end quote. What do you and or Fretheim think about that common uh, common critique? Yeah, when I was reading this uh, recently, refreshing it, I put some notes in the side right on that quote, too. So you and I are thinking, yeah. Um, I think that folks who think that developments in science or history threaten the authority of the Bible tend to think of the Bible kind of like a, a this is a pejorative analogy but it seems apt to me kind of like a, a house of cards you know I don't know how much people play cards today but especially when I was younger we would take playing cards and we would stack them up and they look like apartment complexes so that these rooms would go up really high and of course if you weren't careful and you accidentally knocked one of the cards out the whole thing would go down because they're so flimsy. And I think a lot of people think of the Bible like that. If you can find one error in the Bible, then the whole thing, hey, you can't trust it. It's worthless. I mean, you, you can't know it's from God, because surely God doesn't make mistakes and have errors. And so uh, a lot of people have a house of cards view of the Scripture. And what Terry's trying to say is, you know, that's just not a strong way to think about the text. Uh, because, <laughs> for one thing, just empirically, there seem to be contradictions in it. But also, theologically, as we mentioned earlier, about the way God might be working in the world might suggest that we should expect there to be some different voices, some different opinions, some even, perhaps, outright contradictions. And these people are living at a particular time that surely the science they have is not going to match up with the science today, and the science today is not going to match up with the science 200 years from now. So uh, it makes no sense to try to expect that somehow the writers of Scripture are going to have a timeless, correct understanding of science. So instead of thinking that if there's one particular problem, the whole thing collapses, we should think of it in terms of its, its usefulness. Yeah, someone that I don't bring up a lot 
on this show because I have a I don't really know exactly what I think about him a lot of times is Rob Bell. But one thing that I really have loved and that I have loved more over time in his first book, Velvet Elvis, he talks about a similar thing. He doesn't use House of Cards. He uses a brick wall, but it's the same idea that, you know, you can't remove a brick without knocking the whole wall down. It's all cemented together. You're going to do irreparable damage. And he he recommends a trampoline approach. You got 25, 50 springs all around the trampoline. And if a spring breaks, the whole trampoline is no, it's not no longer useful. Now, if you lose half of your springs, you you really got to work on something, but like you can replace springs as you go along and you still have the same trampoline. And I think that's a good image for what really we have no choice but to do as we grow, as we learn, as we love God with our mind and pursue Knowledge, knowledge which is given to us by a God who creates a knowable universe, right? Uh, I don't know. What do you think about that image? Yeah, I, I think these illustrations are helpful. There's one that I put together a couple years ago that I like to use, and it uh, uses an outmoded service, and that is the telephone book. Um, okay. You know, it used to be in the old days, if you wanted to know somebody's number, you had to get the telephone book, and you know, you looked up their number. Uh, and of course, the telephone book also has yellow pages, which are advertisements for you know various companies and services, et cetera. And I found once a, 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 in a yellow book an actual advertisement, and it says uh, "Pet Fish Training." And underneath it, it says, goldfish are golden training systems. They're the most intelligent living creatures on earth. With our loving guidance counselors, your fish could soon be reading Shakespeare and solving algebraic equations. Just send $1,000 certified cash to our SIS account along with your fish in a plastic baggie of water, and we promise we will send it back ready for Harvard. Now, of course, this is a joke. This (laughs) is not true. But... If you were to pick up that uh, phone book, go to the Yellow Pages and see this obviously erroneous ad there, a a joke in it, you wouldn't say to yourself, this telephone book is worthless. I'll never find an accurate number in this whole book. But in reality, what we all know is that the telephone book is mostly accurate, is very useful. If you want to find out something, you have a good chance of being correct if you go to the telephone book, but not 100% accurate. People might change their number. They move locations. It happens. But pretty good good shot. Exactly. And and crucially, better chance than some other way of getting a phone number. Ah, nice addition. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what if we think of Scripture like this? Uh, you know, maybe it doesn't isn't error-free, but it may be the best shot we've got at trying to understand reality and God. Uh, we have to do some work. We sometimes uh, have to do uh, interpretive kind of moves that we didn't expect. But it doesn't mean we throw the whole thing out once we find some kind of error in relation both internally or with science or history or whatever. So I think that's that's a helpful way to look at Scripture without having to worry about sliding down the slippery slope once you find one error. Right. So the next five questions are all going to be in the text itself. We're going to get more into the Bible here. What examples does Fretheim give from within the Bible that questioning and challenging God are okay things for humans to do? One of them is when he talks about Abraham arguing with God in Genesis 18.25. Abraham says, shall not the judge of the, all the earth do right? 
which is another way of saying, right. look, you're God, you, you're supposed to do the right thing. And it's kind of like Abraham reminding God that you're a morally perfect being. You can't go out and slaughter all these people. Uh, you have to stand up for uh, who you are. Uh, that's a nice way of saying that in the text itself, we have different voices. And sometimes it suggests that we are questioning God and saying, you've got to be who you say you are. <laughs> I think another one he gives is Moses, right? Moses says, I'm not, I don't want to be the spokesperson. God says, all right, Aaron, Aaron can be the spokesperson. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, of course, obviously, there's the Genesis one and two passages, which, uh, you know, don't fit nicely in the kind of science books that you're going to find in your your undergraduate 101 science in terms of uh, how the world came about. But he wants to say in that particular instance, uh, we can look to Genesis 1 and 2 and still find helpful and truthful claims about God as creator without having to buy into a literal six-day creation. Well, so you just answered my second question, which was about Genesis 1 and 2 and how postmoderns can think of it, which is helpful. So the the next one is, here's something that you might not expect a postmodern theologian to say if if you're uh, not already in that camp. I think it's worth quoting. Quote, some scholars claim that when we evaluate texts with harsher images of God, we tend to domesticate God. We end up making God more palatable to current tastes. I believe we are always in danger of doing this. And so he acknowledges this conservative claim against liberal theologians. Uh, what, what do you think about that? I, I think he's going to go on to say we have problems with the other side as right. well, but I appreciate that he wants to say uh, the Bible does need to stand against some of our common conceptions of who God is and what God must be like. I mean, after all, I don't know about you, but I look at my own life and think about my image of God and the way it's been changed over the years. And I would like to think that the scriptures themselves have been played a major role in shaping my view of God in different kinds of ways. It would be a real shame if, you know, when I was 15 years old, I got a particular view of God and then I said, well, that's got to be the right one. And now any biblical text that doesn't fit that one, I'm just going to cut out of my Bible. The Bible does also, I think, stand as a prophetic voice, uh, a reminder, not just a resource, but also uh, sometimes uh, a, a goad or a prod to push us to think differently. Yeah, and he does sort of follow that up by saying, we also need to be careful about calling God a child abuser and a killer of children, which which <laughs> which is also in the text. And that leads to, to my next question. When more traditional biblical scholars or readers affirm, for instance, that the Canaanite conquest narratives are historical and, and are necessary for the Bible to retain its authority— Do you think, Tom, I'm asking you, do you think that they have really put themselves into these scenes and imagined them emotively? Like whenever I've done that, if I've imagined myself as an Israelite soldier shoving my sword into the belly of a fleeing pregnant Canaanite woman, I simply cannot imagine that I could have been doing the right thing in that moment, no matter what God decreed. It's like my own biology and my moral sense, which I think, by the way, comes largely from the rest of the text, which I think is given to me by God, is like completely repelled by that idea if I sit there in it. Do you think that—I'm not asking you to impugn you know, your detractors or whatever, but do you think that people have really sat with that 
if they sit with it, can they still affirm that? Yeah, this has to be true. Or what do you think is going on there? Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty complex, and it obviously it's going to depend on the individuals. I remember folks who had this kind of approach to Scripture, the more fundamentalist approach, uh, when I was younger, talking about how unreliable our feelings are. And so, and of course, there's lots of truth to that, right? right. I mean, yeah. uh, and so if they might say to you, well, look, you might not like the way it feels when God tells you to take your sword and stab a pregnant woman who's running away from you, but your feelings aren't trustworthy. And so you need to rely upon God's voice. Now, you know, this is not my view, but um, I'm more with you. I think, man, does this, can you really stomach this? Can you really buy into it? And the kind of argument I would make is very similar to yours as well. Isn't God also the God who gives us these moral intuitions that we find, I think, substantiated in some parts of Scripture? I would want to say the majority. Isn't God also the one who provides this conscience, this moral sensibility? And shouldn't we also listen to it when we're trying to figure out what's right and wrong? So, yeah, I think sometimes people, to get around the harsh questions of Canaanite genocide, make moves to discredit any kind of emotions that might go against the way they want to interpret uh, the biblical text. Or maybe we could say, based on our previous conversation today, the way they feel they must interpret the biblical text. Nice. Because they're operating on a modernist or fundamentalist or fundamentalist adjacent understanding of texts. And so they just think, I don't have a choice, man. I have to accept this. And so I'll do what I got to do because I need the gospel still. And I need, you know, Jesus still and, and all of this stuff. And maybe this entire conversation is an argument of you don't have to do that. You can take a postmodern reading and still get the gospel. Yeah. I actually find more people in the circles I run in, especially laity folks in colleges, well, even some scholars, when they come upon these, we'll call them these terror texts, especially sexual terror texts that uh, Fredheim talks about, they are very reticent to question the biblical accounts. They're very reticent to want to say, well, maybe the writers misunderstood what God's doing here. And they'll want to say, look, God's ways just aren't our ways. I'm a a finite person. God's infinite. And while I think the biblical text is saying this and this particular story of, you know, God asking people to, to rape others doesn't fit the regular text, I'm not willing to discount it because look, I'm just not God, and I don't have a God's eye view. I understand that particular pull. In fact, it might even be one form of postmodernism. But mm. I let me be testimonial here and, again, not speak for Fredheim on this. I've come to the place in my life where I can't stomach that. I've come to the place where I am brave enough, I'll call it brave, uh, courageous enough, to say that there are some texts that just simply get God wrong. And I've done it in public a few times and made people uncomfortable. But I say that not because I think I'm more enlightened than anybody else. I say that because of what I think the broad biblical text is saying about the kind of God who exists. And so I take that broad biblical witness and then critique these particular cases that I think are horrific and wrongly portray God. 
I think Terry wants to do that in some cases, but he doesn't say quite the same language I would. I think that kind of uh, possibility needs to be brought to bear when we come across these examples in Scripture in which, uh, you know, God says, for instance, uh, in Second Samuel, uh, that God will take their wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor so that your neighbor can lie with them in the sight of you. This kind of notion that God would be in the business of pimping out your 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 wife to be raped uh, yeah to be raped yeah uh, I just can't buy that and I'm I'm not afraid to say you know what I think they just got it wrong there yeah the the kind of the way I've been saying it recently is that I just have far more evidence for the claim that God is thoroughly and fundamentally loving and just than I have evidence that the text is inerrant nice and nice I mean, so I have to make a decision. And I don't yeah. have enough evidence for inerrancy. So I'm going to go with loving God. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, if we really take these things seriously and we think that God must be exactly the way all the biblical texts say God is, then God's got multiple personality disorder. God's got major problems of schizophrenia. You can't trust this God. In fact, let me say something bold. Do not worship the God of the Bible if Every single portrait of God in the Bible is true, because that God is not worthy of my worship. Mm. You can't trust that God. Now, that's why I think you have to make some moves, and Fredheim and postmodernism can help us make moves that can overcome this, these uh, discrepancies. I, I want to make one note on that. I, I think that I notice a kind of a move often um, in friends of mine who will take that more hardline approach and say, I have to submit to this God, God is sovereign, it seems to me sometimes that they are making the same points or argument that a person who has just been conquered by a dictator would make. Of Mm. like, you know what? I might wish that Mussolini didn't come to power as a fascist, (laughs) but Mussolini controls the army, and he can send me to hell. And I just, I have to, you know what I'm saying? It's yeah, that's beautiful. Not always, but sometimes I I pick up on shades of that. It is very similar reasoning. And, and I just think that's fine. And, and if God is really that way, then I might be kind of fucked. Like that might be true, Yeah. but that's not the God of Christianity. Yeah. And so I I do have to make a choice. I'm with you. I'm with you 100%. So we got through some of those particular passages now we're to, to what I hinted at earlier, where he's going to lay out uh, some help for how we can interpret this stuff. So he gives us, for instance, three factors that can help us. Other biblical texts, our new identity as people of God, and non-biblical knowledge. Can we spend a couple minutes on each of those? Sure. So under the first one, other biblical texts, he has a couple of, I think, important moves. One is that he makes the argument that you need to use Scripture to interpret Scripture, and that sometimes some biblical passages can uh, argue against other passages, and we've kind of already touched on that. Yeah, For and, me, and, and later he's going to give us a particular one that he likes from Exodus as kind of a, a central hmm. lens through which to interpret the rest of Scripture. I'll just tease that now. Yeah, that's nice. For me, I'll, I'll make it even simpler. Uh, my, my way of uh, judging some texts uh, against others is to say that the texts that privilege love are the ones that give us the truest a picture of who God is. And so I interpret the ones that seem to suggest that God is not loving 
in light of the more prominent, dominant, and the ones Jesus emphasized. But anyway, another idea here is this idea that is uh, many theologians talk about, and it's called the canon within the canon. And here the word canon is spelled C-A-N-O-N, not like a canon you shoot cannonballs out of. Right, but the canon and, of Scripture being the accepted books of uh, the Bible. Right. And so what he makes the claim is that uh, even those people who say, look, all of the Bible is equally authoritative for me. I don't privilege one over any other because they're all exactly what God wanted and given from uh, God. In reality, we all do privilege some ways of thinking, some passages, some books, some ideas over others. And that's a way of saying that there's a canon within a canon. That is, there are some things we think are more revelatory or give us a clearer picture, and we emphasize those. And I think one way to think about the various Christian traditions and denominations is to ask the question, what is their canon within the canon? In the Wesleyan tradition, we probably would look to First, uh, Second, Third John. The Bible verse that John Wesley quoted most often is, uh, we love because God first loved us. And so that's kind of the canon within the canon, the way we understand these things. For Calvinists, it's probably Romans or some part of Romans. Yes, yeah. And that's the way. And then for Anabaptists, it's going to often be the Sermon on the Mount. That's the canon within the canon. We interpret the rest of the text through Christ's moral teachings. Yeah. And speaking of Christ, that's kind of the third sort of uh, sub point under other biblical text. He wants to make a move and he doesn't really emphasize it here, which is understandable given that he's an Old Testament professor. But that is... uh, that we can have a Christocentric or Christ-oriented, or Greg Boyd uses the phrase cruciform, cruciform right. view of uh, the Bible. So we read it in light of Jesus. And that's a and that's a wide-ranging view. I mean, Greg Boyd has famously done that recently in his Crucifixion of the Warrior God and, and Cross Vision, his popular version. But also Christian Smith, at the end of The Bible Made Impossible, he's a sociologist and not a biblical scholar, but he's Roman Catholic. And he advocates for a Christocentric reading as well, basically reading problematic texts through the death and resurrection and willingness to suffer of Christ and saying, well, what light does that put on the, the stories that Israel was telling itself about their early days? You know, how, how does that shade it now looking, looking back from Christ? Yep. Yeah, it's very common. Very common. So this next one is our new identity as people of God. And if people remember the homosexuality episode, this is one of Richard Hayes from Duke. One of his big moves in, in his New Testament uh, ethical look is he he uses this as one of his three tools of like our new identity as the body of Christ. Yeah, this is one that I, I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on because I, I didn't underline as much in this section. I wasn't as convinced by this particular way of thinking, but it's basically affirming that if we are truly in Christ and we are new creations and that we are, uh, this provides us a perspective on reality that can help us then to try to interpret Scripture, that because Christ is in us, we're trying to be followers of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit, all these kinds of language right. that Christians often use, that can help us as we try to uh, make sense of the biblical texts. Yeah, I think I would think of it as sort of a, a melding, if we want to use the Wesleyan quadrilateral as a baseline, you know, scripture, reason, tradition, experience. This mm-hmm. is maybe a kind of a in-between tradition and experience, leaning a bit more towards experience, uh, in, insofar as 
as postmoderns, we would want to really account for the fact that there are indeed, empirically, there are these groups of Christians different from our own group, different from other groups in terms of their gender, their nationality, their the time in which they live, and they have a genuine experience of the Spirit and of Christ. And right. we have to take that seriously because the body of Christ is the result of Christ's death and resurrection and the founding of the church after that. And so that is a lens through which we can look back. And so maybe you would say, this is where feminist theology or womanist theology would come into play. The reality of groups of women finding their voice within their faith communities and within the scholarly community, the reality of their being systematically uh, kept out of seminaries for hundreds of years. And then what does that produce? They are in Christ. Like you, you cannot read Paul and say that feminist theologians are somehow not in Christ. You might disagree with them, but they're there. Yeah, well, I would like to say that you can't read Paul and say the feminists aren't in Christ, but that happens an awful lot. Of course, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm a type of person who gets more than my fair share of critical letters from people, and not a few of them will begin with the, some sort of claim like, you have been deceived, you know, <laughs> and it's sort of a claim that, you know, right. you think that you understand the truth, that you're part of the community, but you're either willingly or unwillingly under the power of the evil one. And so your views are satanic or wrongheaded or sure, whatever. Sure. Um, yeah, so, I'm familiar with that kind of thing, too, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got, I've gotten the old, it would be better for there to be a millstone around my neck and be thrown into the ocean <laughs> than to make my podcast uh, we, yeah, we, uh, we, you get public enough on this side of things and you're going to get some emails and some Facebook comments like that. But yeah. so one other thing I'll just say about this is this came up in the uh, gay affirming episode I did with Daniel Kirk. And oh. he says that, look, we got to take seriously the fact that there are groups of queer Christians who are yep. like producing beautiful work about the Bible and theology. And like, it's, it's a very high bar for us to say that's not really the Holy Spirit working in their life. We have to have a lot of hubris to claim that. And so we need to take the reality seriously. And they might be wrong about some stuff, and we're wrong about some stuff, but but don't simply discount these groups of people who have evidence of the Spirit offhand. I like I like that. Yeah, I like yeah. that. So then the last one is non-biblical knowledge. I love this one because I think that this one gets really underemphasized in certain circles. Uh, the fact that with science and stuff, we can know so much about God's creation and we actually can know it with like a pretty high degree of certitude and we believe that God created it, but we always look on it askance as compared to how we read something in the text that we actually, frankly, don't have the same level of evidence for. Yeah. Uh, I, I, this one's a big one for me too. Right. And I think there's uh, you know, you mentioned earlier that your view of God can shape the way you view the Bible and what you expect from the Bible. Uh, my view of God also shapes the way uh, what I can expect for the revelation of God outside of the Bible. So, you know, in my view, God right. is present to all creation. God is active to all creation, that we can find the revelation of God's uh, nature, God's love outside the text, not only in the lives of other persons and in the church, but in the natural world, in the sciences, the arts, the humanities. Uh, I have a, uh, you might say, a God-saturated worldview. And I think that's really important 
because we can bring those things to bear when we look at Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, every sort of latest scientific theory that comes down the pike, we say, hey, you know, scientist X just said this, this doesn't seem to fit with Psalm 107, better chuck it out. It doesn't mean that, but it means that we really can find insights that we then bring back to bear on the text, sometimes helping us to understand the text, other times perhaps placing into question the veracity of a text, but believing that God is not just revealing through the text, but is revealing in the world. And since you brought up the LGBTQ stuff, let me um, let me also talk a bit about that. Um, I my particular view on that subject does not align with my the denomination of which I'm an ordained elder, and that's always a lot of tension for me, and I get in hot water over that. But on this particular issue, I actually think the Holy Spirit is speaking more loudly outside the church than in it. In other words, the, the revelation of God's love is more present, I think, in the witness of LGBTQ people and their advocates than of Christians who are in denial of, the, of God's activity in, in those people in those domains. So in to my be view, fair, I, though, I think that there are people who see that and are really struggling and are trying to ride the line. You know, oh, definitely. I, I get emails from people like, isn't there a loving way to like respect the Bible on this and not be a dick? And, and so, yeah. so people feel that tension. I think that they Definitely. agree with you. They see that love and care. They see the advocacy, which they respect in other civil rights questions and stuff like that. And they're drawn to it, but they don't see a way out, you know? Yep. I, I agree. Yeah, I didn't mean to come down as condescending. Sure. Uh, um, and this has been not only issue, uh, the way people have wrestled with the LGBTQ issue, but also important issues throughout the centuries when there's been a tension between particular biblical texts and the role of women or slavery right, or right. whatever. Yeah. But the point here is that I, if we take seriously the notion that God is present, active, and revelatory outside not only the Bible but even the church, then that becomes a means, by which, a means we can use to try to make sense of Scripture. Fredheim raises a co- another one of these common concerns, these common reactions. If there are multiple meanings and even multiple theologies, do we pick and choose the theology that we like the most and name it biblical? How would you respond to that? Well, I think sometimes we actually do that. But... Right, which, which, he, which he mentions earlier. That is a danger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this is where we bring in these other factors we've talked about uh, that try to inform us, that place checks and balances on it, on our understanding of God, namely issues like uh, what the tradition has said, what uh, fits with experience, not only ours, but others, what seems coherent, rational, reasonable, the sciences, the arts, etc., and I don't think Terry would say this either, but I don't think there's some sort of formulation you can put everything through, pull the right buttons at the end. You've got the correct theology that falls out. There's always going to be um, questions, especially on such a big issue as God. But there's also tools, resources, means by w- that we can use as we begin to pull together themes that suggests God is one way rather than others. Yeah, and I think that he would say, and this is kind of how I think about it, like, 
I don't prefer to be a postmodern. I just think it's the only option available to me, given the data. And if he's right, and if we're right about the text itself presenting different different voices, different visions of who God is, if it is actually not univocal in the text itself, then we might go, man, it's a bummer that I'm going to have to do all of this discernment work to figure out what God's like. But the alternative is worse. It is imposing <laughs> a formulaity and a homogeneity on a text that is not homogeneous. Yep. And so okay. that's worse, right? I totally agree with you. Yes. Yeah. And another thing, just to remind our, our listeners that uh, when we talk about post-modernity, it's sometimes really easy to think that like pre-modernity, those people were totally in the dark. Right, right. Modernity, they became rational. And now we're the step above everybody else and we're better and we're totally different. Whereas a lot of the things that uh, postmodernism, at least in terms of biblical interpretation, is saying is drawing upon what we might call pre-modern ideas and incorporating them in uh, ways that seem to make better sense. Right. In fact, I'm going to bring up Dale Martin in a minute here. But one thing that he loves doing is showing how uh, sort of a a postmodern look uh, at something looks a lot like the early church or the f- church fathers or these early councils or, you know, whatever, stuff like that, Arrhenius and and Augustine and all these guys. Yeah, and throughout the history of Christianity, time and time again, major leaders have called us back to the early church. I mean, one of my favorite theologians, John Wesley, does this all the time. He talks about the primitive church. Um, I think that there's some truth to that, but I also think that we don't live in the primitive church anymore. Right, right. And, uh, you know, science really has given us some truths that we just can't unlearn, and we have to take those into account. Speaking of what we have to do, uh, given the data, he, he has a nice image. He says, we're going down a road, and there are two ditches on either side as we navigate this messy task of interpreting who the God of the Bible is in reality. And so the two ditches we want to avoid, one of them is we might too closely identify the textual God with the actual God, right? We might say, uh, this is, this is the word of God is these words in English, you know, translated, disagreeing with each other and all of that. We might say, well, regardless, I just, I want it to be the text. So that's what it's going to be. And that that's an error as we've been talking about. But there's also an error, which is we might too readily deny any connection between the textual God and the actual God, which is what sometimes uh, super left, super progressive Christian theologians or lay people might tend to do so that the Bible becomes essentially no help to us at all. How do you think about navigating these two ditches in your own work? Well, I think both of these ditches are attractive because they hold nuggets of value and truth to them. And so that's why um, that, you know, true temptations are temptations that have something of worth that make you want to do them. And they're also and, simple. So yes. they ha- there's something you're drawn to, and then they give you a simple, totalizing worldview. It's It's like people who leave evangelical communities to become ex-evangelical fundamentalists. Where yeah. they're just trading one fundamentalism for another, and that, and you can see how that's attractive. Yes, yeah. You know, let me let me build on your fundamentalist sorts of sort of notion because I I know a bit of your story, you know a bit of mine, and I'm suspecting some people listening to this uh, share the similarities we have in stories. And 
And that is uh, a lot of us grew up in churches that had this one ditch as our prominent way of thinking of God, that the the Bible uh, actually gave us the full truth about God, or at least God was identical to uh, the way the Bible talked about God. And we, then we started looking at the Bible and saw tensions. We started hanging out with other Christians who had different ways of thinking about God. We started hanging out with people when, outside the Christian tradition itself. And we started asking these big questions. And then oftentimes, some of the people we really admired in that tradition who really emphasized a particular way of thinking about God, they ended up being screwy people. You know, they ended up abusing folks, stealing money or whatever. And after a while, we just said, the heck with this. This doesn't make any sense. And then we said, then, you know, what do we do with the Bible? Well, the other ditch looked really attractive, which is, okay, the Bible, no doubt a great piece of literature, no doubt pretty interesting. Uh, can't believe anything it says about God, maybe, but, you know, great literature. And so the temptation there is to run away from the abuses, the narrow-mindedness, the fundamentalism that maybe we were raised in or initially attracted to, and then kind of go into, well, there's nothing there worth looking at. There's no possibility that the text can tell us anything true about God. Of course, Fred Heim wants to steer a middle way, and that's you know where I'm at as well. Uh, but as you rightly say, that middle way is not a clean and neat kind of way. It means uh, making wrestling with the text and not having lots of certainty and uh, trying to live in the tension of a text that tells us some things true about God that we can know with certainty, that we believe are true, without having the full truth and even having some uh, tensions within it. Yeah, I want to say two things. Number one is that sometimes if people really have experienced trauma, they might need a, a clean break for some period of time. Or yeah. if the trauma is really bad, perhaps forever, and that's actually a healthier way for them to, yeah. to be loved by their creator. But for most of us, we would hope that eventually you can land back in a faith community that is navigating that tension and, and doing so in an honest way, acknowledging the messiness of it. The other thing is that on this notion of messiness, one of the most helpful things I've read in the last 10 years about any of this is a little book called The Myth of Certainty by Daniel Taylor. He was a literature professor who taught at evangelical institutions and really struggled through much of his teaching career writing this middle line. And uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes for anybody who's interested in that book. I've tried to get him on, but he doesn't really do a lot of public stuff anymore. But it is, I've had five friends read it, and we all unanimously just loved it. It, it was written in the 80s, but it's 80s or 90s, oh. but it's, it reads like it was written today. That's interesting. I've not heard of that book. Uh, another book I might throw out there, though, that sounds similar is uh, Greg Boyd's fairly recent book. I think it's called The Benefit of the Doubt. Okay, uh, great. That's another one you might look at. Yep, I'll put that in the notes as well. I mentioned Dale Martin earlier, and now I'll get to the, the main thing I wanted to say about him. He is the recently retired New Testament professor from Yale. He, he's an openly gay man, and he has admitted to me in our conversations that sometimes he pushed even further than he wanted to go, where, that he was even comfortable going maybe exegetically with a piece of text in terms of interpreting it to kind of needle and, and get people out of their complacency. So sometimes he's known for some of those hotter takes, we might say. But in his recent book, kind of his uh, summing up of his overall theology, 
and an approach to the text and and Trinitarian theology, biblical truths, which I highly recommend. He does a thing that that I see Fretheim doing in this article, which is to use the idea of metaphor. And metaphors are always true in one sense and not true in other senses. So, uh, in fact, uh, just recently we had a whole episode with Dale about the four Jesuses of the Gospels. And he he would even throw in the Jesus of Revelation, which is another constructed vision of Jesus. And that these visions of Jesus, when you take the Gospels individually, if you don't read them in light of each other, you notice that they present these mutually incompatible, slightly, versions of Jesus that are true sometimes and not true other times. Sometimes Jesus is a clear teacher explaining exactly what he means by his complex parables. Other times he doesn't explain them at all. And if he offers an explanation, it doesn't even make sense. And and he says, <laughs> that's like our life. Sometimes what Christ wants of us is not clear. It is, it's shrouded in mystery. Other times it's very clear. And uh, Fredheim does this as well. God is metaphorically a loving parent. God is metaphorically a holy judge, etc. But God is not merely a loving parent or merely a holy judge because God can't be contained in a single metaphor nor by human language. Um, what, what do you think of this metaphorical approach? I think it's really powerful. It, it, actually, I don't even think you have to say that God is not wholly contained within a metaphor. I mean, we can say the same thing about you in terms of being, uh, you know, a parent. Right. You're not merely a parent. You're not merely a guitar player. And even if you are a guitar player, saying the words guitar player don't capture fully everything we might want right. to say guitar players ought to be. So I don't think this is just constrained to God language. I think it's constrained to the way our, our language uh, works in reality itself. So we talked about this a little bit earlier, that we might have lenses through which we would read the text. We were talking about other passages or canons within a canon, and Fretheim gives us uh, a particular lens that he likes. As an Old Testament scholar, no surprise, his comes from the Old Testament. He says, this is the most quoted passage from the Old Testament in the Bible, and it's from Exodus, and, and I'll quote it. The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, end quote. So we get this God in this Exodus passage of unending love, but but with a sense of justice, right? Which is especially important for the narrative of Israel and Exodus and Babylon and all of that. And so what do you think, Tom, that we get if we, for instance, take this as our lens through which we read uh, the rest of the biblical text and particularly problematic passages? Well, he's doing something that I mentioned earlier that I would want to do, and that is preference or privilege, uh, the themes of love, faithfulness, etc., and try to use them to make sense of those passages or stories that seem to paint God as rather unloving, unjust. And so this is a move he's making, one that I particularly like. He's making an argument that I oftentimes make in terms of saying that the themes of love are most prevalent. He's saying this particular uh, excerpt from Exodus is most prominent in the Old Testament, I think that's, we've already seen, that's one of his maneuvers in trying to uh, make sense of 
uh, the Bible as a whole, and that is asked questions about what themes are most prevalent, what ideas are most common. Right. Here, um, he's saying what texts are most quoted. This is going to, as you know, not only help me think about how to interpret those passages that are troublesome, but it's going to prompt me to make some bold moves that Terry makes just briefly in this essay in criticizing uh, some very historically prevalent ways of thinking about God, what Terry right. calls classical theism. Yeah, it's like like we were saying earlier, it's not just a way to get at the problematic texts, but it's also that whole what you think about God will affect how you read the Bible and vice versa. So it, it is, it's even going beyond just dealing with the problems, and, and it's really constructively going into our daily piety, our daily life of faith. It, if we are willing to say, you know what, I, not just, I'm not just going to interpret Scripture through this passage, I'm going to pray this passage every morning, or I'm going to, you know, whatever, like, I'm going to include this in my regular practice. Yeah, I think so, uh, because what at the end of it, we've already said this several times, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but again, our view of God is not only going to shape the way we interpret the Bible, but the Bible itself, at least one would hope, is going to shape our view of God. And what Terry's pointing out here is that the prominent themes of the Bible point toward a particular picture of God uh, that we ought to take seriously. And as you say, probably actually even fits the way we oftentimes live our lives and, and express our piety. So I have two two items here left. The first is is a robust prompt, and then I want to end just with his final sentence of his article, which I, I just think is powerful, and you can add anything you want there. So there is this section in his article towards the end in which I hear a lot of your own work and the way that you describe your theological project. And so I thought it would be good to, to bring it up here. Fred cool. Heim says that we should say no to the following two overall approaches. Number one, pick and choose among texts about God according to our own likes and dislikes or in terms of whatever tradition we happen to belong to. We should say no to that. Number two, we should also say no to insisting that biblical differences be consolidated to present a uniform and single picture of God. Rather, he offers a third option. Seek a unified portrayal of God, that is, in my words, an internally consistent understanding of God, but with the understanding that some biblical texts will just not fit. This is Tom Ord land, right? <laughs> this is where you I'm live. So, I'm so happy you saw that because this is totally where I live. Yeah, right. you're right. I remember reading this in the early 2000s, and I had kind of come to this perspective by then. I, I maybe didn't have quite the language to articulate it, but this is kind of where I was landing. And then I came across this, across this article, and I said, ah, this Terence Fredheim here, he and I are on the same page because it, it means that, you know, everything doesn't have to fit to my conception of reality or my particular groups. It's just not a chaos of voices. But on the other hand, it also, I don't try to have to make all of the Bible get shoehorned into a particular systematic theology, we might say. But I can say, look, there are these broad themes that work together in a coherent way but not all of Scripture fits those that broad, coherent outline or that broad, coherent model. 
instead of cutting those out or saying, uh, you know, that those have no value whatsoever, uh, I'm going to retain those. They can be sometimes be prophetic voices reminding me I don't have it all figured out. But also I found that sometimes those ones that I thought were outside my system, I've realized that I could incorporate them in in ways uh, that may, that actually help the model uh, be more robust. So I'm happy that you see that that fits the way I, I look at scripture. Well, uh, the other thing too is that unified portrayal of God. This is a big this is a big part of yes. your work. Is that yes. theology is model making, and it's we we should never have so much hubris that we say that our model of God reflects God as God actually is. But at right. the same time, and this comes back to that thing at the very beginning, granularity. If I'm the kind of person who requires a good bit of granularity to my understanding of God, a good bit of detail, that detail should be internally consistent. I yes. shouldn't be trying to worship God of two minds that are fighting yes. with myself. Well, when I'm feeling angry, I'll worship the angry God that will avenge my enemies. And when I'm feeling compassionate, I'll, I'll worship the compassionate God who wants me to forgive my enemies. I, I should have a vision of God that anchors me, that is more consistent than I am. I'm not consistent. I'm a human yeah. being. I struggle and I, I have good days and bad days. I want my image of God to be to be uh, stabilizing. And I, I, I think psychologically I need it to be stabilizing. I, I, I need it to be internally consistent. Yeah. And in fact, I think it's hard, at least for me, and I suspect for you, but maybe not for everybody, it's hard to take theology seriously if it doesn't have that unifying picture. Because at least for me, I've been in so many conversations in which people's ideas seem so unreasonable, and they pull out that mystery card, and that somehow is supposed to smooth everything over. And I just reject that approach. Now, again, it's not saying I've got God all figured out, that right. my model is perfect and corresponds perfectly to who God is. But yeah, searching for a unified portrait of God that doesn't have to appeal to these big mystery cards when the questions get tough, that seems to be not only more intellectually satisfying, but also uh, it motivates me to live a particular kind of way in light of the God this model uh, portrays. So I love this final sentence of Fred Heim's article, and it will, I'll read it as kind of a benediction, but you can add anything you'd like. Quote, the church cannot prove the authority of the Bible. It can only issue a call to enter into a community where the gospel is preached. The postmodern church invites us all into an ongoing theological conversation. I, I'm going to read that again. It's so good. One more time. The church cannot prove the authority of the Bible. It can only issue a call to enter into a community where the gospel is preached. The postmodern church invites us all into an ongoing theological conversation. Oh, and, man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how good. good is that? That is very good. Yeah. And and that and the I love that invites us all because in mm -hmm. the postmodern sense we are inviting these different communities, interpretive communities, reading communities, communities of different life experience, of different socioeconomic status, of different yes. times and places and saying, "Yeah, everybody is invited to be in this community of engaging with this text, engaging with the theological concepts that come out of the parsing of the text and church tradition and, and our reason. And we're not here to, to sort of prove and then bludgeon with our mathematical proof that you're all going to hell if you don't get in line. We yeah. are we are trying to 
live and serve and serve you, oh, f- potential future member. Uh, and, and that just feels so much more in accordance with Christ's ministry to me. Uh, I'm with you. I think if there was only one thing I wish Terry would have added there is to have some kind of phrase or line that goes back to that point right right at the beginning that what the authority of Scripture, and I think the reason we want to be a part of a Christian community, points to is this possibility for living the good life, a flourishing yeah, life, well-being. Right. It's not just that I want people to be a part of my community and the, to engage the text because, you know, it's, it's an interesting intellectual pursuit. I actually think that in doing so, we can live the abundant life that Jesus Christ invites us to live. And so there's there's a certain amount of emphasis upon well-being that also yeah. uh, is plays a role here. Maybe we could say it can issue a call to enter into a community where the gospel is preached and lives are flourishing or something like uh, that. Yeah, nice. There, there you, you go. go. And, I think and, in, the, yeah. in the next edition of this, I'll put that in it, okay? <laughs> yeah, it's just... Uh, <laughs> just uh, uh, edit, yeah, be a, like the biblical redactors and editors. Okay, as promised, I know this is a long episode. Thank you for sticking with it. I'm going to answer this patron question, and I field these on the Facebook group. The Facebook group is for patrons only. If you want to be a part of that, become a patron. You know how to do it. So the question this week is, did you receive flack from your evangelical friends and church family when you became decidedly gay affirming? And what were the range of responses like? This is a great question. I'm going to use it as a bit of a launch pad to tackle a few different things here. I think the first thing to say is that there really is a difference between an individual person changing their position on this and a church institution or a pastor doing the same thing. There's a lot of talk in traditional circles that Christians who are gay affirming are, quote, caving in to culture. I talked about this with Daniel Kirk a bit on our homosexuality episode, number 10, but that criticism ignores the fact that there are a lot of cultures, right? There is conservative culture as well that needlessly demonizes gay people and scapegoats them. Obviously, that is not what all traditional Christians are doing. I'm just saying that culture does exert some of its own power. But anyway, facts on the ground, even in liberal metropolises like my own Seattle, show that when churches come out as gay affirming, what typically happens is they lose half of their members. I'm not sure that this will ever change, at least not for a long time, because religions tend to appeal to conservative impulses in human psychology. Tradition is something that we conserve. It's not something that we change whenever new ideas come along. And this, of course, comes into tension with much, but not all, of Jesus's ministry. Uh, But we'll leave that discussion for another day. The point here is that a lot of times when pastors or leaders of institutions publicly affirm their queer brothers and sisters, there is a price to be paid. For me, honestly, not so much. Part of this might be because I have been leaning this way since college. About 15 years ago, I formulated my first personal argument for gay inclusion, which went something like this. All sins are sinful because they are in some way selfish. Wanting to have sex with men instead of women or with women instead of men 
is in no way selfish as compared to wanting the opposite, what heterosexual people want. Therefore, gay sex is no more sinful than straight sex. Now, I don't think that that's like an open and shut case by any means. I thought of it when I was 18. Uh, For instance, if heterosexuality is truly designed and desired by God in some way, then perhaps selfishness has nothing to do with it. But all that is to say, I've been unconvinced by the traditional stance for as long as I've been an adult, more or less. It wasn't until I came across the argument that Daniel Kirk presented back in episode 10 that I realized I had found a satisfying overall argument, but my general leanings and intuition had gone that direction all along. So people in my life, if they've bothered to ask or if I have told them without asking, have known pretty much that this was my view for a long time. As far as I know, nobody stopped supporting the Patreon over this issue, but it's possible. Um, Certainly the Patreon grew the month that this episode came out. So at least net, it's fine. Um, But also, I just don't have as much to lose here as a pastor who's making his living from the church. I say his living because if it's a female pastor, unless it's Foursquare or a few rare denominations, most denominations do not ordain women and also have the traditional view of homosexuality. But at this point, I actually want to pivot a little bit and talk about something related that has only recently come up for me. One thing I mentioned a handful of weeks back, answering a listener question about looking for a new church, was that I wanted a church that was gay-affirming, among other more liberal tendencies, because I wanted to be in a space for once that didn't have all the same questions and hang-ups that every single faith community I have ever been a part of has wrestled with. I'm sure some of you resonated with that phrasing. I wanted a place that could just get on with the business of being the church on the other side of those particular questions. And I do have a real thirst for that, mostly because I've only ever read about this in books, usually written by Episcopal Christians, and I've never seen it in real life. But through some conversations with friends, and mostly through prayer and meditation, I have recently come to realize that there is more going on for me. So I have a bunch of friends who are to my right, theologically. Specifically, they have a traditional view on homosexuality. And generally, they hold to something closer to inerrancy than I do. And by the way, for for this particular kind of thoughtful Christian, they don't have the traditional view on sex because they're super grossed out by gay people. These are the kinds of people who have gay friends and coworkers and neighbors and are quite loving to them. In fact, most of these friends I'm thinking of have far more gay friends than I have. So it's not about bigotry. But there is a sense that comes through in certain conversations that I have with them that I am on the wrong path, so to speak, that despite my good intentions, I'm actually leading people astray. I don't think the podcast has helped with this because it's public. And it hurts to realize that there is that kind of distance. And it usually only kind of peeks its head out around the edges of certain conversations. I don't blame them for feeling this way, honestly. I know a group of thoughtful Christians who are really into the gay celibacy revoice conference type approach to this issue. And I worry that they are leading people astray, specifically teenagers who are struggling with their sexuality and just kind of figuring out what it is. How could I think otherwise? How could they think otherwise of me? I don't know that there's anything to be done about this, really. 
The thing that I'm recently realizing, though, is simply that it hurts. And it hurts right in the center of me because all of this stuff for me is connected directly to my love of God. It comes out of the very center of my being. And indeed, it is a part of what I think is my calling to ministry. So maybe as I audit my own reasons and feelings, it isn't so much that I want to find a church where intellectually they are past all of these questions. Maybe I want to find a church where no one is questioning my love of God so that I don't have to feel that particular pain anymore. I don't really know what the answer is to a problem like this. Uh, Maybe something in (laughs) postmodernism can help. Maybe I need to re-listen to this episode and think about it some more. But anyway, that was me deciding to be vulnerable. I'm not great about talking about my feelings. I like talking about ideas. So what better way to work on that than to share those feelings with the internet in a public way? Um, Right now, I'm going to play the final minutes of my chat with Tom about where to find his stuff, including that reading group I mentioned at the beginning, and then I'll be back for some final announcements. Well, Tom, this has been a fantastic conversation. We actually got through everything I wanted to get through. It did take us a while, but that's okay. I think it was worth it. I mentioned at the top that you and Trip did this open and relational theology reading group. Uh, you guys haven't sorted out the details yet, but I, I think there will be some way that the readings and the interviews, the YouTube videos, uh, podcast episodes about each thinker will be available to people after the whole thing wraps up, which is right around now. So I know you haven't ironed that out, but what's that website for people who want to be a part of it? You know what? Uh, I think it's openrelationaltheology.com. I think you're right. That's, that's what it is. I'm going to put it in the show notes. And I have really enjoyed being a part of that. I, I've enjoyed the curation of the pieces of, of reading material and then your guys' conversation. People who go come later will not have the benefit of the Facebook discussion as we go, as we went along. But honestly, I found most of the value in the selection of the readings and then your and Tripp's discussion of it. So I don't oh, think people nice. are missing out too much by not having the yeah, Facebook I group. Think, yeah, I think you're right about that. Plus, I should say that Trip and I plan to do another uh, set of readings in the future. Cool. We haven't picked the date yet, but uh, we've got this long list of folks that uh, we want to explore. And I think, uh, in fact, this week Trip's probably going to send a note to you and the others, uh, getting suggestions. You know, amongst the the possibilities, who would you like to read next? So. Fantastic. Well, I know I'll be in that because I thought it was a, a very cool format, and I found it helpful and flexible with my own schedule and all that. So if people want to be on your email list, for instance, to to be notified about that next one, where would they go? Well, probably the best way to get on my email list is to go to my website, which is my full name, Thomas J or J-A-Y-O-O-R-D.com. And on that website, uh, you can find a link to the newsletter and I'll send out, I probably send out a newsletter twice or three times a month. So that'll give you Uh, the info you need. Great. And uh, that also has links to all your books, I'm sure. So uh, that'll be in the show notes as well. Tom, thank you for your time and for, uh, again, being willing to sort of partially wear your hat and partially Dr. Fretheim's hat. I always enjoy talking with you, Dan. You're a great uh, host and conversation partner. Thank you. And I'm not going to edit that out. (laughs) (laughs) All right. See you, man. All right. See you, Dan. A huge thank you to Scott Sanjemi 
for editing my conversation with Tom today. That was a long conversation. That was a lot of editing work. Thank you, Scott. Uh, again, in those notes, there is that Fretheim article. You could read it now at the end after having listened to it, and I bet it would be even better, like you're refreshing your memory of what we talked about. Please consider joining the Patreon to get bonus episodes and more every month. Patreon.com slash DanCoke or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. Uh, the Facebook group is for those patrons and there is a link to that in the show notes. You also automatically get a link to that when you sign up as well as an RSS feed to put in your favorite podcast app so that those bonus episodes will come and show up in the same spot that these episodes show up. And uh, yeah, so we've got some really fun episodes coming up. Therapy. Uh, staying within your church or institution and email me you have permission podcast at gmail.com I want to hear anything you have to say I want to know what you're thinking what do you want me to talk about how does this podcast hit you how does conversations go that start from it all right see you guys next week <laughs>